We love to explain quantum physics and the mysteries of the universe, but the mysteries of finance, not so much. Intuit helps you demystify your finances through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Understanding standard deductions or interest rates can be very complicated and tricky with big potential consequences. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionized over 20 million bedtimes with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cozy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Kelly, I have kind of a basic question about your science farm operation over there. Your questions make me nervous, but as long as it doesn't involve anything that might scare the kids, I'm willing to answer. All right. Well, if it's a science farm, then what are you farming? Science? Do you harvest like raw science? Are you making organic farm to journal science? (laughs) We do actually do science right here on the farm, but it's not all that we farm. Oh, that's right. You also have some humans growing in the farm, right? Oh, okay. Look, we have children, but we aren't (laughs) farming them. There's no harvesting of the children going on. I mean, have you checked with Zach about that? I know he can be quite literal. You know, I'll, I'll admit, I never thought to say, please don't harvest the children while I'm recording the podcast. <laughs> well, they're probably fine. I mean, at least 50-50. particle physicist and a professor at UC Irvine, and I am not much of a gardener. I'm Kelly Wienersmith. I'm an adjunct professor at Rice University, and I too am not a gardener, and I once killed a cactus. (laughs) But you run a whole farm, I hear. Well, Zach does the planting. I mostly just sort of mow the hay when it gets too tall, which is fun (laughs) because I love the tractor. So I'm more of a destroyer than a builder. I see. Well, in my marriage also, the gardening responsibilities are on the other spouse. Even in the clay soil of our backyard in Southern California, my wife has managed to plant greenery, which has thrived all over our backyard. Whoa, good for her. That's awesome. Wait, what was it she planted? She's planted a bunch of pretty hardy stuff, mostly succulents. In our first years here in Irvine, we went back and forth between California and Geneva several times. So we abandoned all the plants. So she would just plant a bunch of stuff and then we'd come back and nine months later and see what was still alive. Nice. Let natural selection run its course. I like it. I can get behind that. Exactly. Though it doesn't produce very much edible stuff. Are you guys actually producing things on your farm that you can eat? Uh, like technically we are, we're trying to do that, but what usually happens is Zach starts the garden and then we get totally bogged down by a project and almost everything dies. So very similar, except we're not leaving the country. We're just being neglectful. But this year, our loofah gourds grew. And so we have a lifetime supply of uh, squash-based sponges, if anyone's in need of some more sponges. so that But that was kind of fun. 
Well, welcome to the podcast, Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, in which we try to grow a garden of ideas in your mind, planting seeds of understanding about black holes and quantum physics, hoping to nurture your understanding of how the universe out there works, and to grow your mind so that it's large enough to incorporate all of these vast cosmic ideas. How many of these do you have? I could go on and on, but my regular co-host Jorge can't be here today, and so I'm delighted to be chatting with one of our regular guest hosts, Kelly. Kelly, thank you very much for joining us again today. I'm delighted to be back. I had a ton of fun reading this book. That's right. Sometimes on the podcast, we talk about the real universe, the mysteries of nature, how far back we can explore with our minds all the way back to the beginning of the universe, or how black holes work and what's inside of them. But sometimes we think about artificial universes, universes created created within our minds and explored by science fiction writers because we think that the creativity found in science fiction is actually a vital element of science. That thinking about the ways that the universe might be is a very important way of actually doing science. And so sometimes on the podcast, we will read a science fiction novel and talk about the science of that universe, along with interviewing the author of that book to get an insight into his or her mind. And so on today's episode, we'll be talking about the science fiction universe of a half-built garden. This book is by Ruthanna Emrys, and one of the things that I love about her book is that I, I feel like when we talk about climate change, we're often so negative that sometimes it feels like it's not even worth trying to turn the ship around. But her book is about a near future humanity in 2083 that is starting to turn the ship around. They figured out some ways to start recovering from climate change that involves some new political organizations, new ways of people sort of learning to work together, but no like amazing tech that just pulls all of the carbon out of the atmosphere. Like there's some hard work that needs to get done. But I appreciated that that was sort of like a take on climate change that was, uh, you know, a little bit positive, like a we can do this sort of attitude. Yeah, this book takes place in about 2083. And clearly there have been some disasters between now and then, some real climate change and probably some suffering. But you're right, the book is not like a Mad Max in Thunderdome. Everything is destroyed and a few humans are scrabbling for survival in a new harsh world. World. It really describes a situation where we have adapted to it. We have come up with new political and social organizations that do allow large populations of humans to exist and even to thrive and like have fun and chill out. Totally. And, and those humans sort of work together and exist in slightly different ways than what we have now. So like you still have corporations and the corporations still sort of have a like let's use all the resources sort of attitude. They're not totally on board with turning the climate change ship around, uh, which isn't too surprising. You still have nations, but the nations have a little bit less power than they used to. And now it seems like most of the activities that happen in people's lives are happening at the watershed level. So within your watershed, you make decisions about, you know, working together and what you're going to do. And so you're sort of linked globally, but most of the action is happening locally. And fun fact, I, I believe the word for that is glocal, <laughs> which is a great word. Can you spell that word for us? What was that? Global? Glocal? Like globalization? <laughs> it's when you've got like lots of exchanges of information and stuff, but like, at the local level, it sort of is interacting in people's lives and those people are taking what is helpful for them and sort of mixing it with their own culture to make something that's a little bit new and sort of a little bit localized. Well, it's fascinating to me to think about the future of sort of human organization. And, you know, you can look in the past and you can see that overall there's this trend towards sort of larger and larger and more and more global organizations. The nations that we have now are really vast compared to, you know, the city states of 2000 years ago, for example. But there also is this sort of periodicity as we build up large empires and then they collapse and then we build up new empires and then they collapse. And so it's interesting to think about an alternative where we don't just collapse into total disaster and have to scrabble our way through 500 years of dark ages, but instead we sort of fracture 
where things become a little bit more local and we can have like different priorities in different areas and people organizing themselves sort of from the bottom up. I thought this book was really clever in the way that it imagined like this middle ground for humanity, not total disaster. I thought that was a unique take on it also and, and was very cool. And so Daniel, do you ever wonder, are you living in an era where there's gonna be a break and a collapse? I do wonder about that all the time. And I look around at our lives and I think it's easy to imagine us looking back in 50 years and being baffled at how we lived. You know, just the sheer wealth and the opulence and the resources that we consume every day without even thinking about it very much. You know, gas and electricity and money and food waste. It does seem like it'd be easy to look back at this as sort of like the peak of the Roman Empire just before the fall. I hope you're wrong. But yes, I, I, I think about that too sometimes. I think about how I might be living in a cave talking to my grandchildren about, you know, what television was or what running water was. Wow, and you'll be kicking the stone around the old cave to play soccer. <laughs> Maybe the solution for us will be the same as a possible solution presented in the book, which is aliens. <laughs> And I also really liked the take on aliens. They were sort of like a, a fresh look at aliens and she had a very interesting take on their biology. And these aliens were friendly. They had, I thought, a very clever way of, of letting us know that, but I'll sort of leave that to be unveiled uh, to the reader when they read the book. But they have kind of a scary message. What is their message? Yeah, I thought this was a really cool way to sort of put a pin in the issues of climate change and how to live long into the future. Uh, these aliens in the book, when they arrive, they are very friendly. You're right. But their message is you have to get off the planet. They think about planets as a way to like incubate a new species. They're like planets are like nests. You know, you can create a new species, you can evolve, but they're not a place to live. Right. Like you Basically, you got to move out of mom and dad's house eventually and go off into space. And they come with a warning, you know, to say that everybody who tries to live long term on a planet eventually kills themselves. And they even say how they tried to help four other species, but they got there too late before those species basically exterminated themselves through climate change disasters. And so they're coming with a warning saying, get off planet ASAP. And not only get off planet, but get off planet. And then you're going to need to dismantle that planet for resources that you're going to need to keep going in space, which to me was the point where I was like, oh man, like I could imagine if the message is get off planet, you could be like, okay, but like, you know, 25% of us are going to stay because earth can totally handle that. But it's like, no, 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 that's not even an option uh, for a variety of reasons. One of which is we need your parts or, you know, we need the parts <laughs> of the earth to build stuff. And it's interesting. Yeah. How do you, how do you convince the aliens that you should get to stay or, and, you know, of course, humans never agree on anything. And sort of seeing how the human species comes to terms with this ultimatum uh, is an interesting problem to watch get solved throughout the course of the book. Yeah, and I thought it's especially fascinating because it's a question that we have now. Like, should we change the way we live? Should we try to get off planet? Even if aliens don't come and tell us that they think it's necessary, there are a lot of people who think that the long-term solution to human survival is to get off the planet and establish bases on Mars or build Dyson spheres or these kinds of things. I know that you're a skeptic, though, about survival in space and space settlement. What do you think about not just moving out into space, but also dismantling this complex ecosystem that we use as the, like, the foundation of our society? Well, you know, so in the 1970s, the idea was really popular that we need to go out into space because, you know, our population numbers are expanding like crazy. We're going to run out of space. We're going to run out of resources. We need to move into space. And, you know, the like war-induced famine over not having enough resources and the millions and millions of people dying from starvation, like those things never came to pass. And so I, I think no doubt there have been famines and there have been problems, but I don't think that space is going to be the solution to these problems the way that a lot of people think. And also, you know, so yes, I'm, I'm a skeptic. I think we can move into space and we can have space settlements, but it's going to take us a lot longer than I think a lot of people would probably guess or would probably expect. There's a lot of problems we still need to solve. And so I suppose uh, I think we need to figure out the problems down here and not expect on moving people off into space as the solution, because I just don't think we can do it fast enough to make a dent. Did I answer your question? I sort of went off on a tangent. No, absolutely you did. But now I wonder, what is Kelly's timeline for human space colonization? You think it's going to take a while? Are we talking 100 years, 1,000 years? Just like with Soonish, I always hesitate to make like estimates for when such and such is going to happen, because it, it depends not just on how long it takes to make the technology, but like 
how many politicians want to fund the project to make it happen. And so, you know, your estimate for how long it's going to take depends on so many things that you can't control that you're destined to be wrong. (laughs) But what I can say is I think it's a project that if we force to happen quickly, we might regret because, you know, for example, we don't know if humans can have babies in space safely. And I think we want to figure that out before we, you know, move to Mars, for example, and then discover that actually there's a bunch of problems and we're, you know not happy with how things are going. So I think it would be better if it took longer, let's say. But I I don't know how long it would take for you to like meet the bare minimum standards to move out into space. But I think you should be way past that before we go ahead and start that project. Well, I was hoping to trick you into giving a specific number so that I could call you up in 2094 and say, see, Kelly, we're not yet in space. You were wrong. Nope, nope, there's no trick in me. (laughs) There's no trick in me. But I do think you bring up a really interesting issue, which is that a lot of our technological bursts and development do come in response to a crisis. You know, or, for example, a nationalistic race, which essentially is a crisis, you know, that we see an asteroid coming and then we scramble to develop the technology necessary for that. And in this book, I think it's quite interesting that the humans have like kind of figured it out. You know, by the time the aliens do arrive and say, hey, you got to get off planet, the humans have sort of threaded the needle and figured out how to live maybe sustainably on the planet. And it's a really fun conversation they have both internally within the humans and with the aliens about, hey, do we actually need to get off planet or are we doing okay? Yeah. And, and, and you know, of course, it being a discussion involving humans, there's a lot of disagreement. But, but yeah, it's, it's interesting to argue, like, how do we know you know, when we get a handle on this climate change thing, and hopefully it's when, not if, how will we be able to convince ourselves that we've really got things going in a better direction uh, and we don't have to worry anymore? And that's, yeah, that's sort of an interesting question that doesn't have a clear answer yet. Yeah. Something else I really enjoyed about this book were the disagreements. Often when aliens arrive, they're like monolithic in culture and in politics and in opinion. You know, they all sort of speak with one voice. But here they disagree with each other. They have different personalities. They undermine each other. I thought that was really fascinating and probably much more realistic. Yeah. Yeah. I think so often... In the movies that I've seen and the books that I've read, you have sort of aliens with a hive mind where they all can sort of like, I mean, I guess it's not that different than the humans sort of coming to a consensus with their technology, but like, you know, they even still disagree. And yeah, like you said, the aliens are, I think, very realistically portrayed and that they don't all agree even. And it's, yeah, it's, it's very good writing. Yeah. Often in science fiction, you meet like some species and there's like a president of the planet. And I'm like, a president of the planet? Really? Like, there's no way humans would ever, you know, elect a president who could then also act boldly, right? Like, it'd be so bogged down in, you know, disagreements among the planets. And so it's really nice for me to see aliens that, you know, don't always get along and make decisions together. Uh, I thought that was really fascinating. But I want to dig more into the science of this universe that Ruthanna Emers has created in her novel. But first, let's take a quick break. Mother's Day is coming, and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit bartesian.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, 
And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back and we're talking about the science fiction universe of the novel A Half-Built Garden by Ruth Anna Emrys, whose background is in cognitive psychology and sociology. And she's written a really fascinating book, not just about aliens, though, of course, we love the aliens, but also about the future of human civilization, how humans come together to solve the climate crisis and reorganize their own lives. Yeah. And so one of the aspects of the technology that I thought was really interesting is that everybody has this mesh that they can put on their head and they can sort of network ideas. And so like if you are about to make a decision that could impact the whole community, you can send that information out to the network and people can like add their input and vote up or down on solutions. And if anybody has sort of like research that's relevant, they can summarize it. And so the experts, I think the experts have like extra weight and it's like having sort of like a Reddit all the time everywhere, which <laughs> which strikes me as being like kind of overwhelming. You know, to be honest, part of my, like while I was reading it, one of my thoughts was like, I don't think I could handle that. Like <laughs> just when my phone vibrates in my pocket and I'm having a conversation, I'm distracted and I'm like, oh, this isn't good. If like my brain were constantly working through threads of information about decisions, I think that would be overwhelming. But, you know, maybe that's something you get used to. What do you think? I don't know. I was sort of amazed. First of all, I love the richness of the experience that she imagines. She really seems to have thought about what it would be like to have Reddit in your head all the time and to have these sort of constant communal discussions and debate. I'm not sure I would enjoy it also, but, you know, it's really hard to know whether you would appreciate a completely different human experience. The thing that made me wonder was, you know, would people really be so well behaved? I imagine if a bunch of people had access to like injecting ideas into my brain, it might just be dominated by like the loudest, meanest voices, the bullies, basically. It sort of requires everybody to be civil in a way and to agree to the rules and to be moderated. And I was wondering, because, you know, in today's society, we are struggling with exactly just that, how much speech to allow on social media platforms and how much to moderate it. I was sort of wondering how they figured out that balance in a way that we could all live with Reddit inside of our brains. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, no, that's that's a good question. It would be interesting to talk to software engineers about how they're uh, tackling that problem right now. I don't think it's easy. But sociologically, I think it's really fascinating, this idea of devolving control rather than having it be centralized in some distant foreign government, having it be more local and community oriented, people making these decisions themselves. And in some sense, that seems empowering because maybe you want the people on the ground to be the ones who are like taking care of the wildlife and understanding really the water flow issues. But it can also really lead to issues of like inequality. You have a bunch of wealthy people get together and build their own school and have their own fire department and their own police force and pretty soon they're living in like a literal bubble and if the wealth is concentrated there it can be very difficult for people without those resources to have access to it and have opportunities and then where you live determines basically the course of your life so i think there's definitely pluses and minuses to that sort of reorganization of society i agree completely this stuff is super complicated. But in her book, she takes all of this on and she talks about the ups and the downs. The network crashes at one point, which creates, uh, you know, maybe literal headaches for people trying to make decisions. <laughs> so, uh, you know, she doesn't shy away from all of this. She really seems to have done a lot of research into how this would actually operate. Tell me what your impressions were of the biology, because her aliens were really quite inventive. Did you find it realistic? Yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed reading about the aliens. I So I'm I'm not usually a great person to talk to about like critiquing the science of a sci-fi universe because I'm pretty much willing to accept anything as long as the person is consistent with the rules that they lay out. But I will say that she had some really interesting aliens. One was kind of like an insect and one was kind of like a spider and seeing how, you know, those different, you know, groups sense their environments in very different ways. And, you know, how, figuring out how they learned to communicate with one another and appreciate the ways that they were different and learned how to complement one another and how they how they essentially ended up living in symbiosis and were reaching out with humans to try to make them another symbiotic partner. I thought that was really interesting. And additionally, how they engineered their environment so that, you know, both species could interact, even though their, you know, their body plans were really quite different. She thought it through quite a bit. What did you think of the aliens? Yeah, super creative. I had never thought about having two aliens in symbiosis come and visit and like invite us to join their little club. You know, I thought that was a really cool way of thinking about things. I also really enjoyed our insights into the alien culture. You know, on one hand, it was very easy to talk to the aliens because by the time they arrived, they'd already heard a bunch of English in our broadcast and trained themselves on it so that we could just like chat with them immediately. On the other hand, there were important cultural differences. Like the aliens were weirded out when people didn't bring their children along to, you know, diplomatic meetings because apparently in their culture, that's a real sign of trust, right? That you've brought your children. So I thought that was really clever. There's so much in this book of that was just really different from anything I'd ever seen before. Yeah, I, I definitely found myself thinking afterwards, like, oh, would I, would I want to live in that world? Like it certainly would have made being a mom and maintaining my career much easier if it was just expected that my kids would come with me everywhere. On the other hand, I find it really hard to think sometimes when my kid is getting up, <laughs> you know, when my kids were getting upset and I had to make a big decision. But she has her characters deal with that kind of stuff, too. And so, uh, yeah, it was, it was an interesting way to imagine the world that I think would have some big benefits, but would be difficult to implement. Something she describes in her novel as sort of an eventual end point for civilizations is not just moving out to space, but also constructing sort of like mega projects, things like Dyson spheres, which capture a large fraction or all of the energy of a star, allowing civilizations to like vaporize planets or or construct enormous other technologies uh, that require so much energy. I thought it was really interesting to think about whether that's actually possible, you know, whether that's the only way to live as an inter stellar species or whether there are other ways to do it. Yeah, I, I found I found it to be a very depressing prospect. The idea that you would have to like grind up the earth in order to make a Dyson sphere to keep a subset of these species alive right now on earth, you know, alive in space stations or something. I hope that's not <laughs> the direction of things. What? And it sounds complicated. What did you think of it? I think that is an interesting question. And, you know, if we were to build a Dyson sphere here in our solar system, I wouldn't start with grinding up the Earth. You know, I would start with like Mercury. Mercury has a lot of really heavy metals in it and uh, we don't really need it for anything else. We could like lose Mercury and not really notice. But it's a good point that if you wanted to build like a full Dyson sphere, if you wanted to capture like all of the 10 to the 26 watts of energy that the sun puts out, you would need a lot of material. 
right? If you built like a sphere at the radius of the earth, like radius of one AU, then the internal surface of that sphere would be like mind bogglingly large. We're talking about 500 million times the surface of the earth. So we've never built anything the size of the earth. Now we're talking about building something like hundreds of millions of times the surface area of the earth. It's like, we're not even close to doing that. So I think a more realistic trajectory is that you build a bunch of stations in space that are capable of absorbing the power of the sun. And you use that for your space-based infrastructure. You don't necessarily need to go from zero to complete Dyson sphere in an afternoon. And so where, where would you live in the Dyson sphere? So like you'd build the Dyson sphere... Do you live on like the outside part of it or are you just floating around inside of the sphere? It's a tricky question, right? Like you could imagine living on the inside of this mega project, but there would be no gravity, right? You're not going to be able to like walk around in the inside of it. And then you might think, oh, let's spin the thing, right? Now you have this enormous thing, which is also spinning and it would be really unstable. You know, a Dyson sphere that surrounds the sun, it can stay there stably just sort of in orbit. But as soon as it gets off center a little bit, now the part that's closer to the sun is going to feel more gravity towards the sun and it's going to very quickly fall into the sun. And so this thing would be very unstable. And now you're spinning it also, which makes it less stable. And it would need to be much, much stronger, right? This thing would require like a tensile strength that exceeds any known material that we could even imagine uh, building it out of. So it would be very hard to build. It'd be very unclear to know like where you would live on it. I think instead, much more realistic is not to build a huge Dyson sphere that encircles a whole star, but just to build a bunch of satellites that like roughly circle the sun, don't block it entirely, that just gather a bunch of energy because the sun has so much energy, we don't even need all the energy that the sun puts out. What would we even do with that other than building like giant space lasers? I don't want to live in a world with giant space lasers, I don't think. <laughs> would you have to like replace these satellites regularly? That would be an incredible job. Or do you, you just imagine that these satellites are going to work forever? No, you definitely need to replace them. And I think the most realistic plan I've ever heard for building this kind of system is that you build a few of them manually out of materials from like Mercury. And then you build robots that make more and you power those robots using the system that you built. So you sort of build a few bespoke ones yourself using human mining and industry. And then you use that as a launching point for your like automatic self-replicating robot farm that can make more of these things. And then it basically like devours mercury and turns it into a whole network of these things. And yeah, some of them will go offline, but you just keep building them where you can recycle the materials somehow. And then you beam it to the earth or to your, I guess, to your stations because you're living around the sphere. You and I have talked about the prospect of getting solar power in space and beaming it down to the earth. That's tricky, right? Because you got to get it down to the earth, but you don't want to fry people and you don't want to build a giant space laser and hand it over to politicians for so many reasons. <laughs> but instead, if you build it in space for use in space, then, you know, that mitigates some of those issues. You don't need to beam it down to the planet. Um, you could just sort of beam it around space, I suppose. Do you feel like there's any ethical argument against destroying a planet just because we're not personally super interested in it right now? I think there's definitely a question of, you know, colonization and treating it like a resource. We don't know, for example, whether there's life on Mercury. And we also don't know the sort of spectrum of possible life. If potentially, there is life on Mercury that we don't even notice. We don't even recognize. And we just like devour it and turn it into our battery system, essentially, without even being aware of it. Or maybe life would have evolved on Mercury in another 100 million years. It's just sort of like slow going chemistry. And we've prevented that from happening. So there are definitely important questions about how we treat resources in space and also who in our society gets access to those resources. You know, should it be corporate barons who are launching their own satellites? Should it be national governments or should it be like decisions made by a bunch of local communities with Reddit in their brain? You know, these are important questions. <laughs> they are. And, and I've been reading a bunch of papers by philosophers about, you know, conservation of things in space. And, you, you know, you mentioned Mercury's value if it has life on it. But I think they would argue that, like, I mean, it's a whole planet that, you know, has scientific value. And even that even if it doesn't have scientific value, it might be nice to look at. And should we, you know, should we value it just because it's a giant thing that exists? 
And I don't think that's a very popular argument with many people, but it's interesting to think about. Yeah, that is interesting. In the same way that you might say, hey, let's not demolish that mountain because of the coal inside of it. It's kind of nice to look at and to hike around on. We prefer it in mountain form. Right. And what are we going to do with all the acronyms that we use to memorize the planets if there's no <laughs> M at the beginning? And we're going to have to start over and that's going to be tough. That's really an ethical issue. All those children, we've taught this acronym and now they have to start again. Yep. Not fair. <laughs> what are we doing to our children? Think of the children. Think of the children indeed. All right, wonderful. Well, we have a special treat coming up for you after the break. We're going to talk to the author of A Half-Built Garden and hear about how she came up with these ideas and why she is so fascinated by thinking about them. But first, we're going to take another break. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Then it's my pleasure to welcome to the program Ruthanna Emrys. She is a prolific author of many novels and has been shortlisted for several awards, including being a 2018 finalist for the Locus Award for Best First Novel. And she's here to talk to us about her recent science fiction book, A Half-Built Garden. Ruthanna, thank you very much for joining us and welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So first, we'd like to get to know you a little bit before we ask you in detail about your process of writing the book. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to write a book about aliens. How did I come to write a book about aliens? I don't know. I've been writing about aliens, honestly, most of my life. It's always been one of my favorite subgenres of science fiction. How I came to write a book about climate mitigation that had aliens in it is that I've uh, lived in Washington, D.C. for about 10 years. And one of the first things that happened when I came here was that I got involved in the local citizen science movement. And I got involved with people who were running projects that were bringing ordinary people into the process of planning science, collecting data, analyzing data, and seeing the way that that changes the way that people think about the world and the ecosystems around them. So when I started to think about, well, what sort of governance structures could be really different from what we have now and maybe do better at dealing with the huge existential problems that we face as a species, I started to think about that sort of crowdsourced system. And because I am always interested in what challenges systems, and I was thinking about the ways that our current systems are challenged by these problems, I started thinking about, okay, here's a system that works much better for these problems. What makes this system break? And the answer was aliens, because why would it not be aliens? <laughs> That's a good answer. When I was reading the book, I found myself wondering if you have a background in either ecology or political science, because both of those sort of themes were done so well in the book. And so, so do you have a background in either of those topics? Thank you. My background is in the social sciences more generally. I'm an experimental cognitive psychologist by training, but I spend a lot of time working with anthropologists and political scientists and I also spend a lot of time working with ecologists and other people who are working on other disciplines involved in solving climate issues. So I, I'm always working on the how can humans screw this up end of things. But <laughs> I love talking with and working with the people who are working on the how do we get carbon out of the atmosphere? How do we improve the resilience of our systems from uh, you know energy standpoint? And then I'm coming back with, okay, and how do we get people to actually implement the solution now that you've come up with it? Something I really enjoy in science fiction novels, and in particular in yours, is imagining other ways that we can live, other ways that we might organize ourselves. And your book describes a pretty novel political and social organization, the Watershed. Can you explain this concept to our listeners? So the Dandelion Networks in a half-built garden are, they are built around watersheds, and a lot of that was trying to think about what sort of geographic boundaries would have some basis in shared interests and shared problem solving and would make people think more deeply about the world around them. They are also a technological system. The networks are sort of mini internets that are based around watersheds or in some cases around just you know, knitting or other shared interests as well. And people can belong to more than one of them. But the central thing they do is decision making. So they include both systems set up for people to provide input into a problem like how do we reduce the level of runoff into the Anacostia River 
And then they also include algorithms that, if you think about the way that modern machine learning algorithms often unintentionally bring in biases from their data sets. The dandelion algorithms deliberately bring in biases that we want to have. So they include algorithms that bias problem solving towards human rights or towards advocacy for the local ecosystem. And so those algorithms also contribute to solving problems and waiting solutions. One of the things that I really enjoyed about the book, in addition to the things I've already mentioned that I enjoyed about the book, so you talk about a lot, you know, there are people who are arguing that living on Earth isn't a viable long-term solution. And I just finished reading a bunch of books about space settlements, and it was interesting to hear some of those arguments sort of coming back and being heard from different characters in your book. So what is your feeling about the future of humanity? Can we eventually make civilization work here on Earth, or are we going to need to move out to the stars to solve our problems? You know, I kind of wrote the book to argue with myself about that. If I had to pick an answer, I'd say I think that we ought to get both. I'd love to see us going out and colonizing space. At the same time, I think that a lot of science fiction that valorizes the destiny of humans in the stars tends to underestimate the value of having a complex ecosystem that you evolve to live in and the distance that we are from actually being able to make other places more amenable to human life when we're currently in the process of making this one less amenable to human life. I probably did come down on the side of the characters saying, you know, we we need to maybe figure out how to make this work on easy mode in order to do it right anywhere else. Is that the viewpoint you had when you started writing the book or through the process of writing the book, you sort of formed that more like solid viewpoint? I I wrote the book in part to argue with myself. That is frequently why I write books. (laughs) (laughs) Well, something I thought was really fascinating are these political structures that you described to us as dandelion network. It seems to me like sort of an opposite trend to what we're seeing today, where we're lurching towards globalization. In your book, you have sort of these smaller, more local communities that operate semi-independently. Do you think that that's a, a future for humanity, that these larger national governments and international corporations are going to break up in favor of more local solutions? I think it's on the direction that we choose to go. Um, But I really see trends in both directions in the modern world. We get many things that push towards greater globalization, but we also, you know, over the course of this last couple of weeks, I've been anxiously watching Twitter break down and started up a Mastodon account just to make sure that I still had something. And there's something much more granular and localized about the Mastodon instances. And, you know, people talk about that as both strength and a weakness, just as the globalization of Twitter has been a great strength and also turns out to make it kind of brittle. I also see a lot of the best, quietest work towards sustainability and resilience happening at the local level, you know, in towns and cities where people really have concretely shared needs that let them negotiate politics locally in a way that can be more challenging at higher scale. Do you think we're going to need like a major political realignment, like having little watershed governments before we can actually start to address some of these bigger problems like climate change? I don't think it's the only way. As I said, I live in the D.C. area. I'm a Beltway person, and I have a fondness for the executive branch agencies and the hard work that people do in them. The NASA people who are uh, running around trying desperately to be relevant in the book are (laughs) kind of a love letter to all the people that I have seen around here working utterly thankless jobs and trying desperately to solve problems while people denigrate them in 
you know, next door. And I hope that we figure out how to solve problems with the nation states we currently have, because it's honestly easier to do things with systems that you've already got in place. Mm -hmm. But I also think that having subsidiarity and overlapping systems provides some really important ability to address problems in different ways and at different levels. I'd like to hear more of your thoughts about how technology plays a role in allowing that to happen. I mean, I know that in the early days of the internet, we all imagined that the internet would be a powerful force for direct democracy. And now we see there's another side to it that can also amplify hate speech and connect pockets of extremism. And in your book, it was fascinating how the networks and the discussion seem to be the core of this like communal bottom up style government. It was almost a utopian and at the same time as being a little bit dystopian because we were facing this crisis. Do you think that Twitter or Mastodon or these other social networks are going to be sort of a framework for reimagining our priorities and government strategies? I mean, I think they have been. You know, Twitter has changed the way that we do some types of governance. Uh, I have a friend who is currently completely freaking out because Twitter has been the backbone of vastly improved disaster response over the last decade. And she's fairly certain that when a new natural disaster happens in the next few months, people are going to die because Twitter is broken and because we will be losing infrastructure that we were depending on to, you know, put people in touch with resources and to get help quickly where it's needed. Most technologies, they can be used in many different ways, but they also have affordances that make some things easier and some things harder. Twitter, unfortunately, makes some good things easier and some bad things easier. And I think that as we design new technologies, we want to think very deeply about what affordances we're building in and trying actively to prevent or mitigate the worst of the negative ones. I also tend to think about technology in a way that I think a lot of people don't. It's not just the circuits, it's the social structures. And for the dandelion networks, there are algorithms involved, but there are also new modes of social organization and new ways of teaching people to expect and be incentivized by certain types of engagement. And then I'm also very fond of Paul's idea of humans as natural cyborgs that built into our neurology is the expectation of being tool users. So literally when you pick up a stick, you change the way you represent space around you in your occipital lobe where you normally represent space because the distinction that you actually make in representing space is places that I can reach and manipulate and places that I can't reach and manipulate. So every time we take on a new technology, it changes our representation of ourselves and of our ability to impact the world. And that was something else I was thinking of with the dandelion networks was deliberately designing something to create that cyborgness in a way that was good for the world and good for the people who use it. I, I really appreciate the considering technology in the long term from both the perspectives of how it can go well and how it can go poorly. And I, I had a project that I did once and I interviewed a bunch of people working on emerging technologies. And I was really surprised by how many of them didn't have the answer to well, and explain to me all the ways your technology could be bad. And I can't tell if they just didn't want me to know or if they really hadn't thought it through. But I do feel like in general, we tend to be a little bit rosier about technology and we try not to think about the negative implications until they sort of hit us in the face. When people do have answers, they go in very interesting directions. So I, I was involved in, I think, a similar project many years ago now, I think about 
15 years ago, I got involved with a group of people who were trying to do foresight work around nanotechnology and to come up with policy recommendations in advance of actual capability. And after a while in these rooms, you would find that everyone wanted to think about the gray blue problem, which is, you know, very speculative nanotechnology that reproduces itself, optimizes for paperclips, and turns the entire planet into paperclips. And zero people wanted to think about inhaling nanoparticles, which was, in fact, a actual problem with actual nanotechnology at the time. Uh Or, you know, what, what happens if there is a bug in your paperclip optimizer, which there will be, and how does it break down? People love the big dramatic, and I love the big dramatic futures too. I'm a science fiction writer, but it also got very interesting to me psychologically, the types of futures that people were willing to think about and the types that they found uncomfortable to think about. I have a question about the sort of emotional side of it. In your story, humans and aliens have like really big and important cultural differences but they can also successfully empathize with each other and in some cases understand each other's social and political issues. There's even a thread where we get a sense that one character develops romantic feelings for an alien. Do you think that's something we can expect to happen in our universe when we meet aliens? Or is it more just that in the hard realistic take where aliens are incomprehensible emotionally doesn't make for a very satisfying science fiction story? I mean, certainly that's part of why I choose to write aliens who are somewhat comprehensible emotionally, but I think it's, you know, it depends on the species. If you look at the more intelligent other species with whom we share our planet currently, humans get along better with some of them than others. And when we get along with them, we have very weird and unexpected places of breakdowns in communication. The things that humans can agree on with a dolphin are very different from the things that humans can agree on with a parrot. And the relationships that we build with them are also very different. And I said that's the goal even for something where we could learn to speak each other's languages better than humans and parrots do. So then if aliens do arrive, do you think that we should send a cognitive psychologist to go talk to them first? Are you volunteering? <laughs> yes, yes, I am totally volunteering. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> Most people ask that question, backpedal rapidly. So I'm glad for your enthusiasm. So I have sort of a light question here. So what alien in either, you know, literature or movies or TV is the best done alien or the best written alien that uh, you've come across? And what was your thought process as you went through and like designed your aliens for the book? It depends on how you define. I know I've said it depends a lot. I I am very annoyingly (laughs) scientific there. I really love the aliens in Mary Dariah Russell's The Sparrow and the mix of you know, understanding and horrible misunderstanding that happens there and the interesting relationships between the different species there. And I'm sure that that was part of my own influence on wanting to write two species that have a relationship and then come to first contact with humans together. I was also thinking about my first two books are in fact, deconstructive Lovecraftian historical fantasy. And they use aliens that Lovecraft made up. And Lovecraft had many serious issues as a person, some of which my books are about arguing with. But he was really good at coming up with not even remotely humanoid aliens. And then, you know, having whole sidebars of just, here's all the biology that I just made up. Isn't this fun? Oh, look, fungus. And so when I went to create my own aliens, I did set myself the bar of that they have to be at least as 
interesting in terms of body plans is the aliens that I got to borrow for my last book. Excellent. Yeah, I really enjoyed, you know, all the biology that you incorporated into the aliens' lives. I They were... They were very interesting aliens to think about. Speaking of aliens, why do you think we haven't been visited yet? You know, what's your personal answer to the Fermi paradox, given how old the galaxy is and how common rocky planets seem to be? Why have we not yet been visited by aliens? We've been looking for a century. That is a minuscule amount of time. Us worrying about the fact that we haven't found aliens yet is very much like my kid looking for her stuffed animal for two seconds and then screaming that she hasn't found her stuffed animal. <laughs> you make us sound very immature as a species. <laughs> I feel like we are very, at least I hope we're immature as a species. If we're mature as a species, then I have a whole new answer for the Fermi paradox. <laughs> Any of the answers from, you know, we, we missed them to everyone kills themselves with climate change to be accurate. But I also feel like we just haven't been looking that long. And also, I do feel, and this is one of the things I was arguing with myself about in the book, like a lot of the why haven't we found the people who colonized the galaxy already a lot of the answer to that is I think the sort of mindset that it takes to try and grow endlessly is the sort of mindset that it takes to kill yourself off of climate change. Ah. <laughs> and I did ask myself as I was writing this was what would it take for someone to build a Dyson sphere and still be worth talking to? Because I personally think that most Species who you can imagine building Dyson spheres, you hope they stay very far away from your solar system. <laughs> Agreed. So speaking of far off tech, what tech that's either existing in your book or other sci-fi books would you like to see made real most of all? I really like the part of the networks that involves making it easier and more organic for people to sense the details of the world around them. So the sort of augmented reality where it's not going to block your ability to hear birdsong when you go out for a walk, but you can also, you know, dive into the health of the trees or find out what kind of a bird it is if you're, you know, not a person who already has that memorized. I'm also very fond of the sensory substitution stuff that exists that I gave Judy. I just like the idea of being able to have more senses. That would be awesome. I would like to be able to see the universe in all sorts of new ways. I think that would really fundamentally change our view of it. Wonderful. Well, thanks very much for telling us about the process of writing your book and giving us a little bit of insight into how you think about aliens and humans and the prospects of their interactions. It's been a pleasure. Thank you Thanks for having me on. And can you tell our listeners about any upcoming projects of yours? If they've enjoyed your book as much as we have, what can they look out for? I don't have any upcoming publications at the moment. I have a novella that is sitting with a couple of publishers, so I hope there will be a publication date on a couple of things soon. You can also find me on a regular basis at the Reading the Weird column on Tor.com, where Anna M. Pilsworth and I do commentary on 200 years of weird fiction with equal parts squee and criticism. Nothing being published just now. Hoping to have more stuff out soon. Wonderful. Well, best of luck and very nice to chat with you. Good to chat with you. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for listening, and remember that Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionized over 20 million bedtimes 
with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.